your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome aboard. A uh, question that is still hanging over from last week, and I'm not going to give up on this one because it begs for an interesting answer and it has a nice story behind it. Pierre and Marie Curie are best known for investigating radioactivity, but they also investigated phenomenon produced by an Italian woman who had no education. What phenomenon did they investigate? Give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text me at 514-800. Of course, I also have a second uh, question for you. Uh, when it comes to testing for COVID, what is the difference between sensitivity and specificity? Sensitivity and specificity are not the same when it comes to testing for COVID. Uh, tell me what the differences are. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, and I chat with you here every Sunday afternoon for an hour talking about advances in science, giving you some interesting historical stories and answering your questions, and of course, posing questions uh, to you as well. Uh, my background is in chemistry, uh, which I think is the central science. Uh, if you have a good understanding of what molecules are and how they can engage each other, you have a pretty good understanding for what can and cannot happen uh, in the world. I want to start out today about uh, well, stubbing a toe. What do you do? Well, of course, first thing you do is just scream, ouch, uh, because it quickly swells, it gets hot, turns red, and it hurts. So you're cursing, of course, but what you're actually experiencing is the beginning of the healing process. Inflammation is the body's attempt to right the wrongs caused by physical injury, infection, or exposure to some sort of toxin. And thanks to acute inflammation, you know what? You'll soon be back using your toe and kicking around. However, long-term or chronic inflammation, that's a different story. That may have you kicking the bucket. All right. So now that I've tickled your fancy, let's get down to a little bit of detail. Way back in the first century AD, the Roman encyclopedist Aulus Cornelius Celsus produced a comprehensive medical work. It was called De Medicina. And in there, he, he uh, wrote about some interesting things. He described the use of opiates. Uh, he explained that fever was the body's attempt to restore health. And then he introduced ruber, calor, tumor, and dolor as cardinal signs of a condition. Today, of course, we refer to that condition as inflammation. Uh, ruber means redness in Latin, calor is heat, tumor is swelling, and dolor is pain. And of course, at that time, knowledge of physiology was too rudimentary. They didn't know what was behind all of this, but they did know that inflammation was a prelude to healing. Today, of course, uh, we know a lot more about it. 
the redness that you see when your toe is inflamed is caused by dilation of blood vessels in the area uh, because blood rushes to the scene of the affliction. And when blood rushes there, the blood vessels dilate so that you can see the red blood even through the, 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 the skin. And uh, also because blood is warm, there's a sensation of heat if you put your hand on your stubbed toe. So what's going on here? The blood is delivering white blood cells, neutrophils. And these uh, will clean up any cellular debris from the injured tissue. Uh, they deliver antibodies in case there was infection by bacteria or viruses, clotting factors that prevent the spread of infectious agents through the body by tying off some of the blood vessels. Oh, and then there are chemical mediators uh, of inflammation like histamine, the permeability of the blood vessel walls so that the white blood cells can diffuse out into the, from the bloodstream into the injured uh, tissue. And uh, as that fluid leaks out into the tissue, uh, you get swelling and that in turn causes uh, pain. But eventually the white blood cells gobble up all the remains of the injured cells and the antibodies will neutralize the microbes and your healthy cells begin to multiply and pain resolves, the swelling subsides, and the memory of that stubbed toe of this acute inflammation just fades away. But now we come to a more worrisome scenario. Inflammation is an essential response for dealing with various forms of assault on the body, but it's not always perfectly controlled. Some infectious organisms, like the tuberculosis bacterium, for example, or cholesterol deposits in the arteries, as well as some foreign substances like silica dust that you may inhale, these resist the body's attempts to eliminate them, and they precipitate a continuous attack by white blood cells. The immune system can also make a mistake and launch an inflammatory strike against a normal body component, and that is when we have autoimmune disease like arthritis, or the immune system may look on some chemical food component as an enemy to be neutralized. The result of all of this is chronic low-grade inflammation, and that is not good. That is associated with cardiovascular disease, with diabetes, and also with some uh, cancers. So obviously chronic inflammation is undesirable, but how do we know when it is present and what can we do about it? Well, the inflammatory activity of the white blood cells is associated with the release of a number of chemicals, and we call these markers of inflammation. And you probably have heard of some of the C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, fibrinogen, homocysteine, tumor necrosis factor alpha, etc. And uh, these can be determined in the blood. And when they are high, it means that there is some sort of underlying uh, inflammation. But what do you do? What we are really looking at these days is diet and the relative significance of what we eat in terms of the possibility of uh, low-grade uh, inflammation. And this diet connection has received a great deal of attention because diet, of course, is a modifiable risk factor. You can do something about it. And based on an extensive literature search, 
of cell culture studies, of animal experiments with specific nutrients, and human epidemiological studies in which the relationship between inflammation markers and diet was determined, researchers have developed what is called a dietary inflammatory index. And this uses a complex formula, and it looks at various foods and 45 specific nutrients, and these are assigned numerical values based on how they affect inflammatory markers. So for example, sugar, trans fats, refined carbohydrates, red meat, these are inflammatory. Fiber, vitamin C, vitamin E, magnesium, moderate alcohol consumption, these are anti-inflammatory. So people can fill out a food frequency questionnaire, and then based upon that, their DII, or Dietary Inflammatory Index score, can be calculated. Well, it comes as no great surprise that the typical Western diet, with its high red meat and full-fat dairy, refined grains, low fruit and vegetable consumption, well, that's associated with high levels of CRP, interleukin-6, and fibrinogen. And by contrast, the Mediterranean diet, with its whole grains, its fruits and vegetables and fish and olive oil and uh, moderate alcohol consumption and hardly any butter or red meat, that's when you have low levels of inflammation. And we have pretty good evidence that this is meaningful because when the DII scores, that is the uh, inflammatory index scores were calculated uh, in a study of some 5,000 uh, adults, those who ranked in the top quarter, meaning that they consumed the most inflammatory foods, had much higher CRP levels than those in the bottom quartile. This indicates that a DII score can indeed predict if an overall diet is linked with inflammation. So, does this mean that we should all be testing for inflammatory markers in our blood to know if we're at risk of chronic low-grade inflammation? No unless of course a physician suspects that based on symptoms there's some sort of underlying disease issue. But otherwise, if you did the test and you found that some of these markers were elevated, what would you do in response to those elevated markers? Well, what you would do would be what you should be doing anyway. Exercise, watching the weight, minimizing highly processed foods, and like the Mediterranean diet, emphasizing whole grains, fruits, vegetables, beans, lentils, nuts, fish, olive oil, and maybe that uh, small glass of uh, wine for supper. So now you know a little bit about inflammation and uh, how it can heal when we're talking about acute inflammation, but chronic low-level inflammation is a problem. However, you can do something about it by watching your diet. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Still waiting for um, answers to my questions. <clears throat> Pierre and Marie Curie are best known for investigating radioactivity, but they also investigated phenomena produced by an Italian woman. All right, I'll give you a clue. 
Her name was Eusepia Palladino. Eusepia Palladino. What were Pierre and Marie Curie investigating with Eusepia Palladino? And the other question that I posed is about the difference between sensitivity and specificity when it comes to COVID tests. And uh, you know what? I will uh, pile on one more question. What children's toy had a previous life as a wallpaper cleaner? What children's toy had a previous life as a wallpaper cleaner? So that's enough stuff for you to hunt around and give me a call at 514-790-0800 or text me at 514-800. You know, sometimes you have to give a, a begrudging credit to the anti-vaxxers. Why? Because they're always ready to twist and turn any new information that emerges uh, to fit into their agenda. You know that Pfizer recently announced a small change in the formulation of its COVID vaccine. And uh, it uh, was a, a little chemical change. Uh, they added a very simple compound called tromethamine, tromethamine to their vaccine formulation. Well, one of the problems, as you probably know, with the Pfizer vaccine and um, also with the Moderna vaccine, that these are very sensitive to temperature and they have to be stored at a low temperature. The Pfizer one particularly has to be stored at a very low temperature. And that obviously presents some difficulties when you're delivering the, the vaccine and when you have to store it. Well, the keeping qualities of the vaccine can be improved uh, if uh, fluctuations in the pH of the vaccine solution can be prevented. pH, of course, is a measure of degree of acidity. And uh, because the, the vaccine composition is, you know, is uh, quite elaborate, there are compounds in there that, that can uh, change the pH. Uh, this is where uh, this compound tromethamine comes into the picture. It's an alkaline substance, meaning it's a base, and it neutralizes any excess acidity that may occur in the, in the solution. This compound is commonly referred to as a buffering agent, and it has a number of medical applications. For example, when it comes to diabetes, you know that a drop in insulin can lead to a condition in which fats and proteins are burned for energy instead of carbohydrates. And that leads to something called metabolic ketoacidosis, a serious problem that then has to be treated with alkalizing agents such as tromethamine. Sometimes after cardiac bypass surgery, uh, metabolic acidosis can also set in and it can be corrected with uh, tromethamine. This is what the uh, anti-vaxxers have latched onto with their claim that tromethamine is added to vaccines to reduce the chance that the jab will cause heart attacks. So what do we have here? A classic example of taking a speck of truth and turning it into a mountain of, uh, of verbal manure. There's absolutely no evidence that COVID vaccines cause heart attacks. There's none. And, you know, the only uh, complication that uh, cardiac complication is, is the one that we've talked about before, the very small risk of cardiomyopathy that has been noted. Uh, but you also have to remember that the risk is smaller than the risk of cardiomyopathy in patients who have contracted COVID because COVID is a risk factor for cardiomyopathy.
But anyway, even if there were a risk of heart attacks associated with the vaccine, tromethamine would offer no protection. There's nothing to do with that. So it's just a, a totally ridiculous argument, but you can just see how they, they try to uh, seize a bit of information that they can twist and turn to their own ends uh, in order to try to, to block the use of the uh, vaccines. And uh, you, know, uh, you don't mind at all debating legitimate arguments with people. I mean, let, let's face it, you know, they're, they're are some issues with you know uh, the vaccine i mean uh certainly uh, one can uh, argue that we don't really know the long-term results well of course we don't really know the long-term results because the long term hasn't passed yet you don't know long-term results until the long term has passed all we can say is that you know based on everything we know about the history of vaccination and other vaccines uh, it is very unlikely that some sort of side effect will show up in, in the future, but obviously you, you cannot guarantee that. So there are certainly you know, topics that, that can be reasonably discussed, but to suggest that, that the addition of, of tromethamine uh, is uh, somehow linked to, to trying to protect against heart attacks, which would be caused by the vaccine, is just uh, uh, absolute nonsense. Uh, as is the, the claim uh, that uh, the uh, vaccine contains all kinds of dangerous ingredients based on the fact that these ingredients have complex names. There's this, this character called the people's chemist that I've, I've mentioned before, uh, who uh, has a website and he tries to scare people away from vaccination by showing the list of ingredients in the vaccine. And of course, uh, many of these are multisyllabic terms. And uh, people think that just because you can't pronounce it, uh, these things are dangerous, which obviously is. So be concerned about the tromethamine and the uh, in the vaccine. It is certainly was not purposefully put in there to prevent uh, heart attacks. All right, I'm still waiting for uh, answer to my questions. And I'm always surprised when we don't get an answer because it is uh, relatively easy to Google these things. And uh, all you have to do is, you know, spend a, a minute uh, Oops, yeah, uh, someone just texted me. Yes, uh, it's of course not it's not cardiomyopathy. It's myocarditis uh, that we were talking about. Anyway, uh, all right. Uh, I want to tell you something about an amazing man, Aristotle. And of course, this is not a current <laughs> story uh, because Aristotle lived in the third century BC. And yet he was so influential that his ideas dominated Western scientific thought for almost 2,000 years. That's a long time. And uh, that's remarkable uh, because, uh, you know, many of his notions about the workings of the world were completely wrong. But in spite of that, Aristotle is, is regarded as the first real scientist. You know why? Because he was a very curious man. He wanted to find out everything that could be known about the natural world. Through wonder, philosophy begins, he wrote, and thereby dedicated himself to unraveling the mysteries of life. But that quest was by no means a new idea. Others before had certainly wondered about the mysteries of the world. 
but they mostly subscribe to the philosophy of thinkers like Socrates, who believed that the fundamental nature of world could be discerned by mental reflection alone. But that was not good enough for Aristotle. For him, the basis of all knowledge was experience. Explanations were only valid if they were induced by observed phenomena. In other words, theories should be formed starting with facts. And this idea is, of course, at the very core of the scientific method. Uh, so Aristotle, although he lived uh, over 2000 years ago, uh, can be regarded as one of the fathers of, of the scientific method, because he said, let's observe and come to a conclusion that we can't just think things out without making scientific observations. Okay, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check to see what CTV News is all about, and we'll be right back. More details. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for on the science frontier. <clears throat> Sharon is uh, asking about uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who has all kinds of videos on the internet and makes claims that the vaccine, of course, is deadly uh, and that if you get the vaccine, you're going to get holes in your heart and you won't survive more than four years. Dr. Tenpenny is uh, one of the most outrageous uh, spokespeople on, on the internet. Uh, she is a, a, a terrible misinformant, uh, perhaps even worse than, than Joe Mercola. And to be worse than Joe Mercola, you've, you've got to have some talent at misinforming. She's also the one who came up with this idea that getting the vaccine makes you magnetic and uh, uh, testified in some, some sort of, of committee showing that uh, uh, metal would stick to the arms of people who had been uh, vaccinated. I mean, just uh, uh, total nonsense. And how someone who's got a medical degree could be so far off track is, uh, is, is just puzzling. So I would say that whenever you hear Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, uh, just uh, uh, silence it. Sil whatever device you're looking at or listening to, just silence it. She's just an abominable uh, person. Okay, let's uh, hit the lines. Read. Joe, uh, I appreciate your uh, information about uh, quack uh, disinformants to start with. And uh, I'd like to answer your question about uh, the child's toy, which, mm. again, I don't do research. I just do this, as you know, quite spontaneously. I don't go online for this. My answer would be, that the uh, wallpaper remover might be, I might be wrong, would be Play-Doh? Well, you're not wrong. You're right. Uh, <laughs> that is exactly right. <laughs> Play-Doh had a previous <laughs> life as a wallpaper cleaner. There you go. And uh, this, yeah, this goes back a long time, 1955. Right on, and, man. Uh, before, just a few years before I was born. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, at least the story is, and, you know, you never know if these stories are absolutely correct, but it sounds right. Right. When there was a preschool teacher, you know, who the kids in the classroom were playing with uh, modeling clay. Uh, 
uh-huh. and the clay was very hard. And she yeah, had a brother-in-law. Yes, and she had a brother-in-law who was into this wallpaper cleaning thing, and right. uh, he, he sent her a sample of this doughy substance, uh-huh. and uh, turned out that to be just the right thing, and that started like the whole industry, base, right? It's kind of like flour it's flour based. Or... It's yeah. it's starch and starch and yeah. water, yeah. and there's a lubricant in it. There's there's uh, a, okay. a surfactant to to make uh-huh. sure the water doesn't uh, that the water mixes with the rest of Play the on. stuff. Uh, on, there yeah. there's color, of course, as smell. It has a very particular smell, right? That will take you right back to your childhood. And uh, so, but it's become a, a huge, huge uh, industry. And uh, they, anyway, the statistics that they quote uh, about this is that 900 million pounds of this stuff has been sold uh, since it was uh, introduced. And uh, that translates to about 95 million cans uh, every year. That's a lot of Play-Doh. <laughs> so, you know, it has a very interesting history. Uh, it uh, is very difficult to find out exactly what the ingredients are. Because as you can imagine, that's, it's, a, it's proprietary. That's a trade secret. Uh, you can look up the, uh, the patent that was issued back in 1955 for Play-Doh, which I, I, I looked up. But they're very clever in the way that these patents are worded, where they give the information that you have to give, but they also make sure that that you can't really reproduce it based on it. So you know they'll they'll say that the ingredients are water, starch-based binder, retrogradation inhibitor, salt, lubricant, etc., but they don't give you the details. Anyway, it is an interesting uh, toy, of course, to play with. Okay, thanks very much for the answer. Let's go to Moshe. Moshe? Hi, Joe. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, I want to address the question regarding sensitivity and specificity. Yes. Um, basically, it's that the sensitivity is the ability of a test to detect the positive, whereas specificity is really the ability to give a correct negative. In other words, a sensitive test is less likely to provide a false negative result. That's exactly true. That's exactly correct. And and just to, to give you some numbers here, the uh, antigen tests, which are becoming you know more and more widely used, the, the so-called rapid uh, flow tests or the lateral flow antigen tests, that has a, a sensitivity of 77%, which is actually quite low. Uh, so the, the chance of, of uh, test correct is only 77%. That's not so great. However, what is more important there with that antigen, antigen test is that the specificity is 99.7%. So it's almost 100%. So that if it tells you that, that uh, your test is negative, you can rest assured that it is, that you've not been exposed to the virus. On the other hand, if it says that you have been exposed, then normally you would have to do a PCR test to, to check it out. Because for PCR, the sensitivity is over 98%, and the specificity is 100%. So anyway, that's, you know, these numbers are important because um, 
you know, it, it's sensitivity and specificity just in terms of language sound like, you know, these are the same thing, but they're not the same thing in, in terms of, of science. So thanks very much for that answer. Okay, uh, so let me replace those uh, questions. I'm still, of course, looking for the Pierre and Marie Curie's exploration of Eusapia Palladino. What were they investigating? All right, but here's another question for you. If you add a little household ammonia to red cabbage juice, it turns green. What happens if you then blow into this solution through a straw? Okay, uh, this is a classic experiment, uh, very often done uh, even in elementary school. So again, just picture this, if you have red cabbage juice, and of course you get the red cabbage juice by boiling red cabbage, the, the color comes out uh, very quickly. You have to be careful with it because it stains uh, quite badly and difficult to, to get out. So anyway, if you take that red cabbage juice and you add a little bit of uh, ammonia, it's very striking because it will uh, almost immediately turn green. But then if you take this green solution and then you take a straw and you blow through the straw and the green, what happens? What happens to the, uh, to the green? Okay, that's, that's the question. And of course, there's a, uh, a nice answer that we're going to look for here that's going to, to uh, have a you know, interesting scientific uh, connection. And I will tell you another interesting thing. Why would you find glycerol monosterate on the label of a jar of peanut butter? So there's another question for you. So we have two new questions. Why glycerol monosterate on the label of a jar of peanut butter? And what happens when you add ammonia to cabbage juice, red cabbage juice, turning it green, and you take a straw, blow through it, and uh, observe what is going to happen? All right, what is going to happen? Give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your answer to 514-800. And uh, I assume there is traffic going on out there. We'll check how it's going. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are both I think Jerry may finally have the answer to the Pierre and Marie Curie question. Jerry, Robert, yes. Robert, Robert, yes. Robert, I'm Go. here. You're there. Let's have it. Okay. Uh, they had to investigate her and a couple other people that were claimed to be psychic, that they were able to levitate tables and do certain things like that. And they were shown to, that Mary Curie and her husband were able to prove the amount of trickery that was involved in their uh, piece of levitation. Okay, you, you almost have it correct. I mean, you've got the, the essence of the story is that they were investigating Giuseppe Palladino, who was a self-declared psychic and, you know, spiritual psychic medium. However... The interesting part of the story is that while, of course, Mary did not buy into her antics, Pierre did. 
was to be able to levitate tables with the help of spirits. And many times she was caught cheating, you know, lifting the table with her foot. And her manager even admitted that sometimes when the spirits were not cooperating, she had to cheat because people expected her to be able to always produce phenomena. And I mean, this is a, you know, a constant retort that the uh, mediums have when, when things don't work is that, you know, they then have to cheat because people expect it. All right. Yeah, but, but here's even, the interesting even part they of the story. That Mary Curie, they were even saying that Mary Curie and her husband could not disprove everything. Well, yes. And this is, okay, let me tell you what Pierre said. Okay. This is a direct quote from Pierre. Uh, it was very interesting and really the phenomenon that we saw appeared inexplicable as trickery. Tables raised from all four legs, movement of objects from a distance, hands that pinch or caress you, luminous apparitions. And this was all in a setting prepared by us with a small number of spectators, all known to us and without a possible accomplice. The only trick possible is that which could result from an extraordinary facility of the medium as a magician. But how do you explain the phenomenon when one is holding her hands and feet and when the light is sufficient so that one can see everything that happens? That was Pierre. So he was convinced that there was something uh, to this. Well, I can tell you that that uh, there are many ways to to cheat with you know table levitations, and uh, she was, as I said, she was caught doing uh, that on many occasions, and she wiggled out of it by saying that you know she had to do it because the spirits weren't always uh, cooperative. Uh, obviously, there's nobody who has ever levitated a table under proper controlled conditions. Uh, aided by the spirits without any resort to to magic effects and uh back then uh, of course i i think pierre and emery who were obviously outstanding scientists but were not really uh, into how to properly investigate supposed psychic phenomena that takes a, a specialty as you may know yuri geller fooled scientists and uh, there are many other cases of, uh, of people who have fooled scientists with their trickery because scientists are not necessarily adept at uh, exposing tricks. They're not really used to being tricked. So anyway, I, I just thought that, you know, this is very interesting that there's this little sidelight to Pierre and Marie uh, Curie that, uh, you know, I mean, everyone of course knows of their work in radioactivity and the discovery of, of polonium and, and radium. Uh, but uh, uh, I think this story that they also investigated uh, psychic phenomena is not very well known. Uh, the, uh, the movie about Marie Curie, uh, which is uh, it's available now on one of the streaming services, is an excellent movie uh, of, her, of her life. And uh, as you probably know, Pierre tragically died at a very young age when he was hit by a horse-drawn carriage uh, while crossing the, the street. And um, Marie, of course, went on to uh, have a further spectacular career and win a second Nobel Prize, uh, the only woman ever to have won Nobel Prizes in two separate categories. She won a Nobel Prize in physics and she won a Nobel Prize in, uh, in chemistry as, as well. But there were some other interesting aspects to the Marie Curie story. Uh, after Pierre died, she did have a, a fling with a much younger man who unfortunately was married. And uh, this uh, was a big scandal at the time. 
Well, the truth is that, you know, that would still be a scandal today uh, when uh, a Nobel Prize winner uh, is involved in uh, you know, a sex scandal with a, a married man. And she was actually asked to not come to, to Oslo to accept the uh, Nobel Prize because it was deemed that, you know, she had uh, uh, not behaved in a proper uh, fashion. So there, there were some very interesting, you know, sidelights to the uh, Marie Curie story. But I mean, obviously, it was her uh, role in, in science that really captivates the uh, the imagination and what they were able to do, and how they had huge, huge mounts of pitch blend from which they were able to isolate uh, uranium. And uh, that was just amazing that they were able to do that uh, in those days. Unfortunately, uh, she paid for it really with her life because she developed uh, uh, cancer from the radiation to which she was exposed. And uh, obviously, in those days, they didn't know uh, about that. They didn't know the dangers of, of radiation. And she would very often carry around a little vial of, uh, of radium in her pocket uh, because she would demonstrate how it glowed in the dark. And uh, uh, the dangers of radium did not become known until later. And uh, I think I've, I've probably told you the, uh, the story, the rather tragic story of the radium girls. And these were the ladies who were um, uh, paid to uh, paint the watch dials and uh, of course they were using radium-based paint so that the watch dials would grow in the dark and they would uh, put the brush into their mouth to give it a nice tip and obviously they uh, contaminated themselves with uh, with radium and they developed terrible problems uh, you know the, the bones in their jaw would uh, uh, wear away uh, because they just didn't know uh, at that time about the dangers of uh, of radioactivity. So uh, the Radium Girls uh, makes for a, a very interesting story. I think there was a whole book written uh, about them and uh, you know how little they were paid for putting their life at risk. Uh, but uh, truth is that that time they didn't know that they were putting their uh, life at uh, at risk but mary curie of course got all kinds of uh, awards uh when she came to the united states on on a visit she was revered you know as a, a celebrity i mean she was really probably the first real celebrity scientist uh, who was recognized by uh, by the public uh, of course much of that was because it was so unusual in those days to have a, a lady who was a a prominent uh, scientist and her uh, her daughter uh, and her son-in-law also became famous scientists and uh, her daughter and son-in-law also received the Nobel Prize so that family did pretty well no other family has ever done what they did in terms of winning uh, Nobel Prizes so there you have a bit of a backstory to uh, Mary Curie but that's it for us uh, this week. We have once again uh, scooted through the hour and run out of time. But uh, rest assured, we will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>